From the studios of WORQ in Wisconsin, this is the Stand Up For The Truth Podcast. Today's issues, overlooked headlines, and biblical observations, equipping the remnant around the globe. Got your sword handy? This is Stand Up For The Truth. And we welcome our online listeners and also our FM radio listeners to a fresh new podcast of Stand Up for the Truth. I'm Crash Connell. Thursday, July 27th on the calendar. And we have a big, big, deep topic that we're going to dig into today. You want to grab uh, probably a pen and paper and uh, listen very closely. Yes. Uh, welcome to Stand Up for the Truth. My guest today is J.B. Hickson. Always a pleasure to check in with J.B. and discuss some meaty issues. And today is no exception on either count. Uh, my passage for today out of the scripture is Malachi three sixteen and 17. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Will you join with me in prayer today? Heavenly Father, as we consider your great and precious promises uh, to us, we are assured of your deep love and care and that you bow down your ear and hear us. This is comforting and praiseworthy. So we thank you for all that you do for us. Uh, many things we don't perceive or comprehend, as your ways are far above our ways. Help us more and more to be tender-hearted towards your Holy Spirit and toward one another in brotherly love. Uh, we lift up the Hickson family to you. Uh, we ask for your protection and grace and continually give wisdom each and every day for good health for all and to finish well. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome back. Welcoming back J.B. Hickson today, president and founder of Not By Works Ministries, pastor of Plum Creek Chapel in Sedalia, Colorado. You can find a, a number of great resources at notbyworks.org and also spiritoftheantichrist.org. And visit that for volumes one and two of his books of the same name. These are one of the best resources I've found on that subject because it covers such a wide variety of topics and subjects like transhumanism, the Luciferian agenda, uh, global surveillance, secret societies, and a lot, lot more. It's it's a, just a fabulous resource. He's a nationally known author, speaker, and radio host with more than 30 years of ministry experience in the pastoral and academic arenas, recognized for his esper- expertise in the area of systematic theology. Dr. Dr. Hickson has a passion for communicating important theological truths from God's Word in a clear and easy-to-understand way. And we're counting on that today, JB, because the subject today is antinomies in the Scripture. Welcome back. Hey, thanks, Mary. Always great to be with Stand Up for the Truth. And, uh, yeah, I love a great theological discussion, and, and you've picked a great topic today, that's for sure. So do you want to be called JB? Do you want to be, be called Dr. Hickson? What do we call you? Uh, how about, uh, I don't know, Monsignor or His Eminency? Uh, okay. What does JB stand for? I have to ask. <laughs> JB is fine. Uh, uh, Jerry Blaine, actually. Jerry Blaine. All right, JB. All right. So we wanted to throw that in. Yes, we were discussing what are we going to talk about, and you've you've kind of touched on it with, with other podcasts in the past. But I, I hope we can uh, spend the entire hour 
uh, talking about this. Yes, the Bible um, may be the bestseller of all time, but I was looking at some of the titles on Amazon about difficult passages in Scripture, and this tells us just how human reasoning can be a liability when trying to figure out what it says. Here are some titles for you. All That's Wrong with the Bible, Expanded Edition. The Big Book of Bible Difficulties. The Handbook of Bible Difficulties. Hard Sayings. Alleged Errors and Contradictions of the Bible. And my favorite, 1,000 Clear Contradictions and Errors in the Bible written by ex-clergy scholars and Christians. <laughs> That's just a sampling, J.D. <laughs> so, yeah, well, it's, go ahead. Even people said that Paul sometimes was hard to understand, but uh, we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture. That's a big word, kind of an ironic word, because it means the understandability of Scripture, and it's a key doctrine, it's a standard of orthodoxy, and we believe that through the Holy Spirit, the Word of God is actually easily understood by all believers who read it and uh, use proper Bible study methods and just uh, look for the plain, normal meaning, the way words were intended to be used. It's not a mystical book, it's not a secret code book. It's uh, pretty straightforward, and uh, it'll change lives. Well, you know, and sometimes we're going to talk about antimonies, paradoxes, and contradictions today. And I was thinking, before we get to antimonies, I was thinking about this subject and contradictions. You know, say we're trying to share our faith with a family member or friend, and we want to direct them to the Bible, of course, and let it speak for itself. But instead they might say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. You can't trust it. In other words, it's not God's Word. It's completely unreliable. And this is basically an excuse for not believing. I mean, how how can we answer them? There's a good chance they haven't even read it. And so the burden of proof is really on them. Uh, you know, do we ask them to point those out? What's the best way to, because I think a lot of us have come across that situation. Yeah, well, first of all, that's Satan's the same old M.O. that he used going all the way back to the garden. The very first thing he did was question God's word. He said, has God indeed said? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that's the same argument that people, the skeptics use today is, you know, can you really trust God's word? And, and of course, they believe the lie. Satan is a liar, Jesus said in John eight forty four, And so he's convincing people that the Bible is complicated. Uh, but I think it begins with uh, just the simple gospel message. And it's, not, it's easy to get drawn into these uh, arguments and apologetics debates, and uh, with skeptics especially. But let's keep it simple like Jesus did. You know, he said, let the little children come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And I think what he meant there was that uh, the gospel is, is simple enough for a child to understand it. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, and uh, you're a sinner who needs a Savior. And, uh, you know, only Jesus can save you because he took your penalty on the cross, died for your sins, shedding his own blood, paying a penalty that he didn't owe because you owed a penalty you could never pay. Mm -hmm. And he rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and now he offers freely to everyone who will come to him by faith the gift of eternal life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, someone said to me one time, when someone is arguing with you over how sharp the sword is, uh, don't argue with them, just stick them with it. And, you know, the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, Paul said, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And I feel like sometimes we get so caught up in defending the Bible that we forget that it's a living, breathing book, and if we'll simply use Scripture, the Holy Spirit can use that to convict people of mm-hmm. sin, righteousness, and judgment. Mm-hmm. And we are finite minds trying to grasp infinite concepts, right? And And so... Uh, the fall affected our ability to reason, right? So if we're talking to the natural man that doesn't have the Holy Spirit, we need the Holy Spirit, right, to speak to them so that something something will connect with them. But uh, 
um, you know, we just we just don't understand everything, correct? Right, and and I want to clarify, you know, because sometimes people give this impression, especially from certain theological uh, backgrounds, that the unregenerate mind, when it reads the Bible, then it's just gibberish to them. Like it's they can't even put two and two together. They can't understand or comprehend words on a page, and that's not the case at all. Uh, an unbeliever does not have the Holy Spirit, and until in simple faith they receive. Christ and his free gift of salvation, they will not be able to connect all the dots properly, but they can certainly understand basic truths. I mean, some of the most brilliant minds in human history were unbelievers and physicists, you know, doctors, lawyers, uh, scientists, and so forth. And even on my shelf in my library, uh, theological library, I've got uh, books uh, written on Greek and Hebrew and ancient customs and Near Eastern, uh, you know, literature and so forth written by unbelievers, and it doesn't mean uh, they, they don't have knowledge uh, on a human level, uh, but clearly an unbeliever does not have the Holy Spirit, and until they take that first step of faith, they will not be able to really understand and embrace, welcome and embrace, that's the Greek uh, concept there that we see in Scripture, uh, the, the truths of God's Word and, and make it you know, let them change their lives. I'm really glad you clarified that because I do think we tend to think the other way, that they just cannot comprehend anything. But creation has already gone before them so that they are without excuse, right? Do you have book one, creation, book two, scripture, or something like that? Uh, so, general revelation yeah. versus special revelation, mm-hmm. and Romans 1 makes it clear that uh, everyone knows there's a God, uh, so there are actually no atheists, even though they may think they're an atheist. The Bible knows their heart better than they do, and they do know there's a God. But general revelation is never sufficient uh, to bring someone to salvation. Mm-hmm. It takes special revelation, which is the Word of God, specifically the Gospel. Again, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, mm-hmm. Romans ten seventeen. Yeah, yeah, praise the Lord. Well, we're going to talk about antinomies this morning, and I had, we were chuckling before, um, the podcast that there's a word called antimony. This is antinomy, so the N and the M are backwards, but antimony is actually in Isaiah 54.11, and it's a silver metal. It's in the periodic table of elements, and it's it's a Sherwin-Williams paint color. So <laughs> I had this in my head, and I had to keep telling myself, no, it's antinomy. And JB, could you please tell us what that is? Yeah, antinomy is a key word for understanding both scripture and theology, which is the systematizing of one passage with another and, and looking at the big picture. Antinomy comes from a compound word, anti, meaning against or, or contrary, and namos, the Greek word for law. And so the idea here is that something that appears to be contrary to the law or contrary to logic. Um, and it's basically a philosophical term that, uh, you know, describes two opposing principles or ideas that are both true, yet they cannot possibly be true. In other words, it defies the law of non-contradiction. And so uh, in the Bible, we, we call these biblical antinomies, and that is two statements in the Scripture that are true because God's Word tells us they're true, and yet from the human perspective, uh, they seem contrary. And kind of the key verse that, that I think we should mention you know, right here uh, toward the beginning of the show, that that really is an umbrella passage theologically that helps us get our hands around antinomies, is found in Romans chapter 11, at the end of the chapter, the last four verses, verses 33 to 36. And to set the stage, you know, this comes at the end of a section of Romans, uh, where for three chapters, Paul has been answering the objections of his readers about why God chose Israel 
and and not you know the Gentiles and what 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 gives God the right to do that and what about Israel has God forsaken Israel because they rejected the Messiah and crowned him with thorns or does he have a future for national Israel according to which he will fulfill his long held promises to them and of course the overwhelming answer is yes absolutely he has not forsaken Israel entirely but after you know describing his you know his will in regard to Israel using terms like you know Jacob I have loved Esau I have hated and people might you know read that and the original audience might read that and go wait a minute that doesn't seem right he he explains at the end of this uh, section and here's the key passage oh the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor. And he's quoting here from uh, you know, several passages, Isaiah and Job. Who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So we need to remember, uh, Mary and Crash, that sometimes you know, the truths in Scripture may not seem logical to us. They may not seem fair or just to us. But God's Word is true and justice is whatever God says. You know, God is not beholden to some external standard of justice that we've created in our minds. Whatever God does by definition is just. And so when God's word tells us two things that at face value seem to be contrary to logic or an an, an antinomy, uh, we need to simply accept them both as true uh, and and be willing to do that even if it doesn't make sense to us. Mm. Wow, yeah, Romans 11, that's that's just an amazing passage. Um, now, there are antinomies. Before we get to the biblical ones, uh, let me see if I have this right. I'm going to let you do the heavy lifting here. Something like, there is no absolute truth, absolutely, is that an antinomy? And also something called, uh, I read, this sentence is false, all right? So um, the basic statement that a sentence is false is canceled out by the speaker saying that it's true that this sentence is false. Is that sort of what you would call a philosophical antimony? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, especially the first one there. You know, there are no absolutes. Uh, people say that and don't realize they're uh, creating an antinomy. But the, dif- the difference is, in that case, uh, that's not uh, true because there are absolutes. So, of course, you know, uh, liberals, atheists, skeptics, people like that will, will make that claim but what they don't realize is the claim that they are making is not logically possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that case, it's it's not a matter of both being true. In other words, it's not true that there are no absolutes and there are absolutes. <laughs> it's the, the first statement is false from the get-go. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, and I went on I went online, uh, JB, to do a little bit of research, and the the terms antinomy, paradox, contradiction are are just. There's a lot of cross-pollination out there. Um, how do we sort these out? Maybe we could just go with some definitions here, because a lot of a lot of um, well, pastors and um, other Bible school websites and such they mix antinomy with paradox. Um, and here, it makes somebody's head explode. Antinomy can be a paradox and a contradiction, but not all paradoxes or contradictions are antinomies. So, <laughs> can you please help us sort these out with some definitions here? Well, I hope so, but it, it's definitely a, a, a somewhat of a complex uh, theoretical, you know, topic. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, the, the simple definition or difference is an antinomy. In an antinomy, both statements are true, uh, 
uh, at least in a biblical antinomy, let's put it this way, which is what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the biggest one in Scripture, of course, is sovereignty versus free will. How can God be absolutely sovereign and yet man have free will at the same time? Uh, well, he can't. Um, you know, uh, how can uh, Jesus be fully God and fully human? You know, you can't. Any man, anyone who knows math knows you can't be 100% of this and 100% of that. You mm-hmm. can be 50 50 or 70 30, but Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Or, of course, a big one is the Trinity. You know, how can God be three, yet one? That's, that's not possible. And so, you know, antinomy, in an antinomy, it's something that is, at its face value, contrary to logic, yet we know it's true because God says it's true. A paradox, on the other hand, is something that appears to be contradictory, but when you look closer, more closely at it, it, it resolves itself out. And it, it can be true it, because there's an explanation for it. So, for example, um, when uh, frequently in the New Testament epistles, particularly Paul, we read that you've got to die to yourself in order to live the fully embraced Christian life and to grow in Christ. The sanctification, the progressive sanctification process involves putting the old man to death and living in the new man. So how can you die yet live? Well, it's pretty simple. You die to the old man, you live to the new man. So that's not a contradiction, but it sounds... Uh, like a, a paradox, it sounds paradoxical to think you got to die to live. Or how can you be sorrowful yet rejoicing? Like we read about in First uh, Thessalonians four, when our loved ones who know the Lord die, you know you can't be both. Well, yeah, you can because we sorrow over the the distance and the departure and missing them, but we don't sorrow. We're joyful with the fact that they're with the Lord and in, in presence of the Lord. So a paradox seems to be contradictory. But there's an explanation, and if you look more closely, you can resolve it uh, by looking carefully at it and, and, and seeing what it really is talking about. An antinomy, there's no way to uh, resolve it. It, it. You just have to accept it. You cannot, and, and Calvinists, unfortunately, and I've got a lot of friends that are Calvinists. I'm not picking on Calvinists. They love the Lord, and I respect them, but I just have a very strong disagreement with their approach to salvation in particular because in their mind, they're not comfortable leaving the sovereignty free will debate uh, unresolved. They have to resolve it, and be- because they have to resolve it, they end up in the sovereignty camp, making man completely, uh, you know, unable to, to believe the gospel. You cannot believe the gospel, according to the Calvinists. God has to believe it for you. You're forced to believe it. You are regenerated by God through no effort of your own, no response of your own. And then having believed, you in, I mean, having been regenerated, you involuntarily believe the gospel. That's their uh, response. So faith is not the instrumental means of salvation. It's the involuntary response to salvation in their mind. And so I just disagree with that. I think I'm quite comfortable because God's Word teaches it, championing sovereignty, recognizing the doctrine of election, believing that God chooses in eternity past, as Ephesians tells us. Yet at the same time, whosoever will may come, and all 8 billion people on planet Earth today can be saved if they'll simply trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Stand Up for the Truth is what you're listening to with uh, our guest, J.B. Hickson. And uh, J.B., I wanted to, uh, maybe you can't even uh, answer the question about the motives, but it just seems like, when we uh, first are born again and we have all this excitement and we we accept that everything is true because of the Holy Spirit, uh, and and then as time goes on, we find ourselves, like you said, like the Calvinists and other denominations that are saying this has to be resolved for us to uh, make our uh, faith, a statement of faith or or what we're going to be preaching and 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 our uh, that kind of stuff. I wonder if 
if it's just our intellect that has to keep making something out of nothing. Yeah, well, I mean, of, uh, you know, of the making of books, there is no end. We love to learn. We love to study. Uh, I think the mind uh, definitely, especially worldly wisdom and worldly philosophy, as Paul talks about in Colossians 3, can really uh, get us, or maybe it's Colossians 2, actually, can get us uh, kind of in trouble when we try to think of things through a worldly paradigm. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've tried to describe through the years in my classes at, at college and seminary that I teach, as well as just in conferences that I've done, is encouraging people to, to think in terms of why do you believe what you believe. Now, now the fancy term for that is epistemology. Uh, you know, why do you, why do you believe what you believe? Uh, but I think there are multiple influences that we all you know go through in our life that that you know help us develop our you know belief system and understanding why we believe what we believe will help us strip away those that are not accurate that are not you know uh, you know biblically sound so we might believe things because of uh, you know philosophical influences for example uh, something sounds right it seems logical but at the end of the day that's not a valid reason to believe something because as we just discussed there are truths in scripture that seem contrary to logic and in fact are contrary to logic you know it's not possible for god to be three but one and 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 one of the toughest terms to define theologically is the trinity and uh you know as a as a systematic theologian i love looking at doctrinal statements and seeing uh, how people and churches and organizations define the doctrine of the trinity because most often it's not a good definition they've They've bifurcated God into two different beings, and he's not. He's one being, yet he's three beings. And you just have to kind of let, leave it there and trust uh, God to, 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 you know, to, to be who he says he is. So, you know, philosophical reasons, you know, a lot of times, especially in the world of apologetics, people will say, well, if it violates the law of non-contradiction, it can't be true. Well, I, I don't reject, I, I don't accept that. I reject that because, uh, again, you cannot argue someone into the faith. You cannot convince someone that everything is true. Uh, it begins with faith, and faith, by definition, is the evidence of things not seen. And so you just have to take that step of faith, trusting God, and then the Bible becomes the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. And whatever God says, we simply accept it. I'm really glad you brought the, the Calvinism uh, notion in here because there's an older article online um, and it's called Understanding Antinomy, a Key to Peace in the Calvinism Debate, question mark. And I think social media has brought a lot of that to the fore because there is an awful lot of arguing about such things on social media, and that hasn't helped the situation. But it seems to me, you know, whosoever will from the foundation of the world, um, I remember Pastor Chuck Smith says, you know, how do I reconcile them? I don't need to reconcile them because they're friends. And it's yeah. both, right? Yeah, it what, really is both. By the way, when's our break? I don't want to uh, mess you up on your break. We'll let you know. You keep going. I can keep going. Bring the wisdom to us. Bring it. <laughs> well, I uh, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is with uh, Calvinism, you know, they they just feel like God's sovereignty reigns supreme, and 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 there's a balance there. You know, if you go too far to to, 
to man's free will side, you become an Arminian. You become right. uh, mm-hmm. a Wesleyan or someone who believes you can earn your salvation or you can lose your salvation or your behavior makes a difference in whether you go to heaven or hell. That's not true at all. It's simply by grace through faith. It's not by works, as our ministry has, has been uh, proclaiming for you know over 25 years now. So, But Calvinists say, no, no, you can't do anything. There are no conditions. You're either in or you're out. You just hope you're one of the lucky ones, right? Uh, I disagree. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone. That's a condition. So you can't earn it. You can't work for it. Uh, receiving a gift is not a work. If I offer you a gift and you take it, you're not going to say, wow, boy, I had to work hard to get that gift. No, it was free. I just handed it to you. Mm-hmm. And God is freely offering, Romans 3.24, we are justified freely by his grace, uh, eternal life. But you do have to receive it. That's the one condition. He's not going to force it on anybody. Uh, in the same way that we weren't forced to sin, we had the choice to sin, Adam and Eve didn't get, you know, weren't forced to eat the forbidden fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same way, we're not forced to be saved. We have to choose to accept the remedy that God created on our behalf. And so that's free will. And I don't understand how, at the end of the day, only the elect believe and, and so forth, but the, I don't have the mind of God, as we read in Romans 11. So I live here in the realm of time, space, and matter, and even though I understand and believe in election, people aren't marked with a big E on their forehead. So I assume... Mm-hmm. Everyone's elect, and I believe, according to Scripture, that everyone can be saved if they'll simply trust in Jesus Christ. Well, and good theology, I mean, behind the scenes here, good theology can never pick a verse that supports a certain doctrine and explain away those that support the other side. And I think this is another dilemma uh, in, in Calvinism is just saying, well, um, I see this verse, how come you don't? Or I see that verse, how come you don't? So that's a part of it, too, right? Theology where you don't just get to pick and choose one verse and, and build everything around that. Yeah, theology is cross-referencing, basically. Mm. It's comparing Scripture with Scripture. Theologians call it the analogy of faith, and we always interpret the obscure in light of the clear. And so, yeah, there are definitely passages that speak of, you know, election, and I don't have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. You know, some non-Calvinists, and I, I respect them as well, you know, they, they try to explain away election, that every time election occurs, it's only talking about national Israel. Well, I, I understand and agree with what they're trying to do, uh, but, uh, but they're, they're wrong, I, in my honest opinion, and I mean that graciously. Uh, you know, sometimes election means, you know, individual election. But the pro- problem is, or not the problem, but the reality is there are hundreds of verses that make it clear anyone can come. Whosoever will uh, can be saved. And, of course, Calvinists, because of their perspective, then they, you know, they, it's a five-point slippery slope, and one of those points is limited atonement. They think because you don't do anything to be saved, you're either in or you're out. Jesus' atonement is what saves you, that, that, that he only died for the elect. So when the passages like 1 John 2, 2 come up, which say Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world, they have to say, oh, well, that means the whole world of the elect, and they just mm. keep inserting elect, for God so loved the world of the elect that he gave his only begotten son, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's that's doing just what you said, Mary. That's sort of twisting one verse to fit your paradigm. Uh, you know, I would rather accept both. I, I have no problem with election, but I also have no problem with free will and that mankind can choose uh, to either believe or reject the gospel. Yeah, definitely. I like the, the comparison here um, to us and our dogs. This is interesting because, you know, we can't explain our day-to-day reasoning to our pets. We can't, un- they can't understand our day-to-day work or why we do what we do. They don't have any reasoning faculties. 
Um, so simple words and commands, they get that. Of course, the gap between God's mind and mine and my mind and my dog is significantly greater. But it, that's a little bit kind of how it is. We just have to accept certain things because God said them. At what point do we just say, well, you know, God said this, and I believe it because I have faith, and my faith is important to, to God, right? Yeah, yeah. Again, going back to why do you believe what you believe, you know, uh, there are, again, a lot of influences, sociological reasons why we believe what we believe. Maybe because our parents influenced us or our friends or our culture. If we live in America, we might believe one thing versus had we grown up mm. in, you know, South Korea, we might believe something different. Culture, tradition, all of those are influences, and they can be helpful to the extent that sociological influences, uh, you know, undergird what the Bible teaches. Well, then that's great. So if you have Christian parents and they're teaching you to pray and to believe the gospel and those kinds of things, that's great. But at the end of the day, our parents and our friends and our society are not the ultimate arbiter of truth. God's word is, mm. you know, psychological influences, right? That we believe things because it brings us comfort, it brings right. us peace of mind, it gives us, we feel good about it, right? So you, you listen to some talking head on TV or some guest on some talk show on television or something, and you, and you, uh, you, you come away thinking, wow, that really sounds good. I, it's kind of the self-help, the, the psychobabble type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that can be leading you astray, and often mm-hmm. is. And so that's not the ultimate uh, you know, our feelings are not the ultimate arbiter of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, theological influences, what about that? I mean, I believe what I believe because I'm a Calvinist, or I'm a dispensationalist, or I'm a charismatic, or I'm a this or that or the other. Well, theological systems can be helpful for helping frame our belief system and, and frame our understanding of God's Word, but we must always be biblicists first and dispensationalists, let's say, second. In other words, I'm a... All right, I do have to cut you off. You want to know when the break is? Well, here here it is. Coming up, so we will continue that thought. Our guest today, J.B. Hickson, and we want you to stay close. We'll be back with more in two minutes. Our social media pages are shadow banned. Thanks for your prayers and sharing our posts at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Crash Connell with Mary Danielson. Our guest today is J.B. Hickson, and we're taking it in like a fire hose today. (laughs) But I wanted to spend the entire broadcast talking about this because it does get in the way. It just gets in the way. So let us continue with JB here. Yes, we are burning some brain cells today. Um, I want to talk about paradoxes, and tell me if this is one. The Bible is the least read bestseller of all time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. It's uh, collecting dust on many people's yes, shelves. Yes, it really, really is. Uh, but a lot of people have opinions about it, even though they haven't read it. It'd be like me explaining away to someone what Moby Dick means, and I haven't even cracked the cover. So that goes on a lot, too. But I want to talk to you about paradoxes, and one of them would be um, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, We're saved by faith, not by works, lest we should boast. Now, James 2.26 says, Faith without works is dead. Now, let's add something else onto the pile. Philippians 2.12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we have those paradoxes there. Of course, we need context to understand paradoxes. But what I want to focus on here is there is a huge denomination in the world, probably the world's largest, that teaches we are saved by works. And the Bible clearly says that we are not And yet, either by not understanding the Bible or basically ignoring it, the largest church in the world, I believe it is, exists based on that. And look at the mischief that has flowed from that all these years. JB, help us through that one, and then how how important context is to understanding paradoxes. 
Yeah, absolutely. So again, a uh, and that's a great one, faith and works. That's the perfect case study to kind of illustrate a paradox. But again, an antinomy refers to something that is actually a contradiction to logic. Mm-hmm. But because God's Word says it, we believe it, even though we cannot reconcile it. A paradox is something that seems to be contradictory, but upon further examination, it's really not. And that's exactly the case with faith and works. First of all, uh, salvation, the Bible could not be more clear, is absolutely free. And I always like to emphasize that because we've created a culture in evangelicalism that doesn't like that. In fact, people probably just chafed a little bit when I said free, because <laughs> our pride makes us think we can't get something as valuable as eternal life for nothing. People think, well, I've got to do something. I've got to bring something to the table. I've got to stop doing this or start doing this or promise to do this or pledge to do this or make him Lord of my life or surrender everything to him. They, they make the salvation uh, equation about something we do for God or give to God. But that's absolutely not the picture in Scripture. In, in Scripture, this picture of salvation is one-directional. God's the giver. We are the receiver. God gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. To as many as received him, John 1.12, he gives the right to become the children of God. So it's nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. Mm. It's absolutely free. Whosoever will, let him come drink freely of the water of life, Revelation tells us. Uh, And yet, as believers, we are to live out our salvation. That's what Philippians 2.12 means. It doesn't mean work for your salvation or work up your salvation or earn your salvation. It means live it out. And a healthy, normal believer who's been born again by faith is going to produce fruit of the Spirit. That's the normal, natural thing. And any believer that's not doing that, who's catering to the flesh and living in sin, is not healthy. doesn't mean you're not a Christian, because here's a news flash for you. Uh, you know, Christians sin. <laughs> um, big shocker. Uh, anytime we cater to the flesh, we're sinning. And, and the whole struggle that Paul describes in Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5 and you know, 2 Corinthians 6 and other passages is really key to understanding the spiritual battle that we face. When we get saved and the Spirit takes up residence, it does not eradicate that old nature, contrary to what Calvinists teach. Mm. If it did, we wouldn't sin. But as long as we're topside this earth, we still have that tension, and the Christian life becomes about who are you going to follow? Are you going to yield to the Spirit, or are you going to yield to the old man, uh, the flesh? And so the passages that you cited uh, are not, in actuality, contradictions. They're easily resolved when you understand uh, the context. And Ephesians 2, 8, 8 9 is, is a good place to start because verse uh, 10 goes on to say, which we were created unto good works. That's the natural, normal thing that a believer should do. And any believer that's not walking in the Spirit and producing fruit of the flesh is unhealthy. There's something wrong in their spiritual uh, life. It doesn't mean they're not a Christian. It just means they're... They, gotten away from the Lord, they're not abiding in Christ, they're not fellowshipping with other believers, committed to the Word, and so forth. Now, James 2 is a very interesting passage because, you know, I've said this often, and I've taught on this often, I have a chapter or a section on it in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. If you pull ten commentaries at random off the shelf on the book of James, there's a very strong chance that all ten of them are going to mishandle James 2. Mm. In fact, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 was so problematic that Martin Luther didn't even include James in his Bible. His Bible had 65 books in it. Um, but when you really look more closely at the text, you find that it is in perfect harmony with Paul's teaching that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. So let me just see if I can briefly explain what James is saying. 
the crux of the matter is, James says, What doth it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has works but does not have faith? Can faith save him? And by the way, in Greek, the, uh, the required answer to that question, can faith save him, is no. So here you've got James saying, faith cannot save you, and Paul saying, faith alone saves you. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, not at all when you understand what the word save means. The word save is a Greek verb that's used 108 times in the New Testament, and 58% of the time, it, the word saved has nothing to do with eternity. It means physical deliverance from danger, harm, sickness, consequences, that kind of thing. And so we hear the word save, and we immediately in English think, oh, heaven or hell, right? Faith can't save you. You're going to hell. Uh, but that's not what James was talking about. In fact, repeatedly in his five-chapter epistle, he talks about the fact that his readers are believers. In fact, he describes beautifully how they've been born from above in chapter 1. In the passage we're talking about in chapter 2, he specifically calls them brethren, which is a term, adelphoi, it means believers. Uh, So there's no question that these are believers, but what he's saying is, faith without works will not deliver you from the death-dealing consequences of sin. That There are consequences to sin. In chapter 1 he says, sin when it's full-grown brings forth death. And, 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 And sin is an equal opportunity killer, by the way. If a Christian sins and lives a profligate life and, and caters to the flesh, they're, they're going to hasten death. You know, a, a believer is no less likely to overdose from drugs if he does drugs than an unbeliever, right? Sin is an equal opportunity killer. James says when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. So faith alone might get you to heaven, but it's not going to cause you to avoid the death-dealing consequences of sin. James says it'd be like telling a poor, uh, naked, destitute person, God bless you, but not giving them food or a blanket, right? That's, that's not really going to help them much. And so we have to break free from this, you know, all-or-nothing mindset of heaven or hell and realize that James is not talking about heaven or hell here. Hmm. In fact, he uses Abraham as an example. He said Abraham was justified by faith, but then it was some 20 to 30 years later, I can't remember the exact timetable of Abraham's life, but when he offered Isaac and actually lived out his faith. So according to some... Calvinist, you know, if Abraham had died before he offered Isaac, he wouldn't be in heaven because he had faith in chapter 15, but he didn't really show any evidence of that faith until chapter 22 of Genesis. And so James is not saying, as some people suggest, that, you know, it's the age-old statement that makes no sense. It's actually a it is a true contradiction. People will say, well, you're saved by faith that's alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Well, that's not possible. I mean, and God's Word doesn't say that, so that's not a true antinomy. That is an actual contradiction. You are saved by faith alone, and sadly, faith sometimes does not have works. It should. Normally it does when you're catering to the Spirit, but we have a lot of examples in Scripture of people who died having departed from the faith, and yet they're in heaven today. I mean, think of Saul, Hmm. or uh, think of John the Baptist, died in a lonely prison cell, yet you know, doubting whether there's Jesus is even God, and yet he's in heaven today. So faith without works is dead. It doesn't mean non-existent. It means useless. The Greek word there means useless. In fact, faith without works is useless to keep you vibrant and growing and avoiding the consequences of sin in your life. But faith with works, uh, wow, man, then now you've got just a powerful believer who's walking in the Lord and making a difference in this world. Wow. Great insights for our Christian life, J.B. You're listening to Stand Up for the Truth. We're talking to J.B. Hickson. Um, other paradoxes, J.B., such as um, 
whatever gain I had, I count as loss, uh, Philippians 3.7, Matthew 23.11, the greatest among you must be your servant, Second Corinthians 12.10, when I am weak, then I am strong. Uh, it almost seems like there's a contrast between an earthly view and a heavenly view here. Is that kind of the context with those? Yeah, ac- absolutely well said. That that's that's really a great summary of the, of of the paradoxical statements of scripture because again, a paradox upon further examination makes perfect sense. It's not mm-hmm. contradictory. And so, uh you're right. A lot of times from an earthly perspective, things appear one way, and that's why I started with that passage in Romans 11 just to remind us that, you know, we do not have the mind of God. But then from a heavenly perspective, things make perfect sense, you know. Um we can have joy in the Lord and yet be sorrowful on earth. Um, you know, we can be rich in the faith, as James talks about, yet be poor economically, right? Mm-hmm. And yet be the richest people on the earth. Mm-hmm. And so when you understand the context of each statement, they're not contradictory. They express wonderful, you know, biblical truths. Uh, another one that I love is seeing the unseen. Mm. Uh, you know, Second Corinthians 4.18 um, says, We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That goes exactly to what you just said. That's why I love that, that summary that you gave. Um, so we walk by faith, not by sight, Second Corinthians 5.7. Uh, and that's why Corinthians 13.5 tells us we should examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. It does not say examine yourselves to see if you're a Christian. <laughs> the only thing you need to examine to see if you're a Christian is have you trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. Mm-hmm. The Bible never tells us to look at our behavior to determine whether we're going to heaven. So in Second Corinthians 13.5, Paul's saying, hey, examine yourselves. Are you walking by faith like I told you to earlier in this chapter? And uh, when we walk by faith, then even though we can't physically see certain things with our eyes, we can see them with our heart, and the things which are not seen are eternal. So we set our mind on things above, Paul says. We, our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. So those are paradoxical statements that, it, it's a great study, by the way. You know, you really want to grow in some, a deeper understanding of, of, your, of your Lord and how much he loves you. Study some of those paradoxes, because... Um, that that's not antinomies. Those are antinomies. You pretty much well, like we did at the early, earlier in the show. You just sort of here they are. We accept them. <laughs> praise God for them. We mm-hmm. cannot explain them. And if you end up spending all your life trying to resolve these antinomies, you're gonna you're gonna go crazy trying to resolve them because you can't. But a paradox actually presents truths that will really uh, strengthen your faith. And it seems like to me we're talking with J.B. Hickson on setup of the truth. Is it? To me, uh, in my early Bible studies, I just, I, I explained it to myself as the great reversals. It just seems like it's a very common theme in the Old and New Testament. And I said, it's just some kind of reversal, like the first shall go last. And there's that, all of these, these common themes, and he even used, uh, some of, in his parables, uh, the last one to show up, got paid is the same as one that, for, you know, has been there working all day, just all through that. And, it seems like the more that you're in God's word, what used to be in our brain a paradox seems to it does just work its way out because things mm-hmm. start popping. The Holy Spirit is what brings it brings us to remember this, remember this, and so it's kind of like a confirmation to me that uh, praise God that the Holy Spirit is ministering to me right now because this does make perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. Like you said, the see, uh, 
without faith, it's impossible to please God. That that's all. Like mm-hmm. if how do I please God? Well, there's a scripture for that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no question. I mean, that, this this goes to the the, the worldview that you have, and, and Colossians two that I referenced earlier. It says, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Well, how did we receive Christ Jesus the Lord? By faith. Again, more than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. That's a lot of times. I've got a list of those 160 verses and in an appendix at the back of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. But then he goes on, after saying, so walk in him, he says, so, so you're saved by faith and you walk by faith. Then he says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. That's what you were just saying, Crash, is that when you really look at these spiritual truths that, uh, that appear paradoxical, in reality, they just tell you how amazing the love of our Savior is. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what Paul said in that, you know, First Corinthians, uh, I mean, Romans 11 uh, passage. Uh, that I mentioned earlier, he just he goes into this sort of spontaneous doxology. He's just so amazed when he says, "Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out." And then he says, "You know, to Him be glory forever and ever." So, you know, in in Colossians, you know, Paul warns us against you know this. Uh, you know, concept of worldly wisdom. In fact, the only time the word philosophy is used in Scripture, the only single time, is right here in Colossians 2, when he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. And that means love of wisdom, and it's talking in the context about love of worldly wisdom. So when when you study paradoxes, you begin to get your mind off of the earthly, you know, like you said, the last shall be first. So mm-hmm. the world says, "Oh, you got to get all you can. You got to climb to the top. It doesn't matter who you step on. You got to, you know, you got to be first. The Christ says, "No, no, no. The last shall be first. Yeah. You, know, you just walk humbly before the Lord and let Him take care of the rest. Seek first the kingdom of God." Right. And so, then when you study these things, it, it, it takes your mind off of the worldly philosophy and gets it on very important. Christian spiritual truths for the Christian life. And also, I think a lot of the answers to these can be found actually in the person of Jesus himself and his nature. And what's coming to mind, and I can't remember where this is, so help me out with this, um, uh, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself unto death. And and so I think just, just reading that and reading who he is answers an awful lot of these because it all points to the person of Jesus Christ. And that is... Absolutely. Our example, yeah. And, and even when he said to Peter, uh, when he said, you know, uh, if you don't know why I'm doing this, then you don't know why I've come. When they were talking, the, the foot washing. And yeah. so even the people that were surrounded by him had a hard time grasping that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They really did. Yeah, that was uh, Philippians 2, the great kenosis passage. Uh, Let this mind be in you, mm-hmm. which was all Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal to God, but made himself of no reputation. Mm taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of the cross, even to the death on the cross, to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So, yeah, that, that kenosis, of course, is an actual antinomy, because Christ <laughs> did not give up his deity when he became man, born of a virgin. He is the eternal Son of God. He didn't become the Son at, at, in Bethlehem. He's always been the Son of God. Uh, but he took on human flesh, and Philippians 2, which we just read, describes how he, he willingly did not 
you know, activate or, or draw upon his deity, uh, but it doesn't mean he wasn't God. And just as today, when he ascended back to the right hand of the throne of the, of the Father after the resurrection, it doesn't mean he's no longer human. Because Hebrews tells us you know, he's our once-for-all sacrifice, and every sacrifice is chosen among men. So he is fully God, fully human. We can't reconcile that, but we accept it. That's an antinomy. Uh, but the paradoxical part of that is, just as Christ died, and this is Romans uh, 6, great passage on a paradox, uh, just as Christ died in order to live, we too must die in order to live. Uh, he says, uh, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6.1. Uh, and he says, God forbid. Uh, anytime Paul uses that phrase, God forbid, or sometimes it's translated certainly not, he's denying a false conclusion from a correct premise. Mm-hmm. So the correct premise is, yeah, you cannot out God. There's no sin that a believer can commit that's going to make God say, okay, I changed my mind, I'm taking back my eternal life I gave you. I mean, if it's eternal, it can't be lost. So you cannot out God. There are certainly consequences for sin, as James talks about, but you, know, you can't out God. But that does not follow, then, that we should just keep on sinning to get more grace. Because he then says, and here's the paradox, how shall we who died to sin live any longer uh, in it? So we... we We've been buried with Christ by baptism unto death, therefore we should raise and walk in newness of life. So we've put the old man to death, that's the paradox, it's not a contradiction, it's just understanding it. The old man is put to death, now we cater to the new man, and we we live for the new man and produce the fruit of the Spirit. You know, I was thinking, uh, JB, about uh, several years ago, I was thinking of the song Amazing Grace in my head, and I realized as I read um, the first I don't know if it's the first couple lines or not anymore now that I think about it, but the paradox that is grace, and John Newton really nails this. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." In other words, the first part is how God uses grace to draw you and let you know you're a sinner, and it teaches your heart to fear properly so that you reach out to God. And then, um, how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. So we may be miserable before we get saved, then all of a sudden that grace is precious because grace my fears relieved. And I, I just blows me away that John Newton could pick up on the paradox of grace. Um, I, I just think what a fantastic hymn that is. And I don't know if people realize, because we sing it so many times and it just becomes rote. But there's some, yeah. there's something incredible in there. Yeah, no question. Yeah, grace, uh, you know, one, one theologian put it this way, the method of justification is always the same as the method of sanctification. And we're justified by grace through faith, and we live our Christian lives by grace through faith. There's saving grace and sustaining grace, and so amen to that. When you were saying that, I was thinking of uh, without um, perfect love, cast out fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, yes. and, and somebody says, what does that mean? And, and again, it draws you back into the grace and the gospel. Perfect love. What, are you, what does that mean? Perfect love casts out fear. Yeah, fear is always ultimately the fear of the unknown. Every single phobia comes down to fear of the unknown. It's because we don't know whether this snake is going to bite us or whether there's a monster in the dark or whether this crowd is going to suffocate us. Every fear is fear of the unknown. But because we're a believer, we don't have to fear the unknown. We know in whom we have believed, and mm. we're persuaded that he is able to keep that which we've committed unto him against that day. Oh, we know the future. Yeah. We know oh, God's love. So, uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's another paradox. Yes, it is. <laughs> also, this is something I had heard of before I really understood it, antinomy, is antinomianism. 
Um, and I, that has to do with uh, basically saying that Christians uh, are no longer required to observe the Old Testament law. Of course, when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the Old Testament law, Romans 10. Um, but they come to an unbiblical conclusion that now there is no moral law that God expects Christians to obey. And Paul kind of addresses this in what you were saying, that we don't sin that grace may abound. But uh, is there anything more that we can add to antinomianism? Because people may have heard of that but didn't understand what it was. Well, right, we've got two minutes. Two minutes. Yeah. Two minutes. Antinomianism comes from the same root, same compound Greek words, anti and namos, but it's, it's a different meaning in its usage in English. Antinomian means you have no regard for the law. Okay. And uh, sometimes people accuse grace guys like myself and dispensational grace <laughs> guys like Charles Ryrie and others who believe that we're saved by grace and, and works have no bearing in our eternal destiny. They accuse us of being antinomian as if we don't care about good works. And, and I strongly reject that straw man argument. Mm-hmm. We actually, I think, do a better job talking about good works from a biblical perspective, because to a Calvinist, you know, if you're not doing good works, you're not saved, period. You know, you, well, you never were saved. It didn't take. You need to do over. You didn't make a strong enough commitment. I guess we they say, don't like that thief on the cross thing, then. Yeah, yeah, no, I, he didn't do any good works, right. So uh, you know, we, it's a matter of why do you do good works? And as Paul said, you know, if you're not doing them, it's not going to keep you out of heaven. But, man, there are sin is awful. It will chew you up and eat you out. It will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to mm-hmm. stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. That's what sin does. Yeah. And so uh, we give the biblical answer for sin in the life of a believer. Uh, but uh, sometimes we get accused of being antinomian, as if we have no regard for the moral law, which is nothing could be further from the mm-hmm. truth. Well. Also, a lot of people get mired in the translation differences, you know, this version only or that version only because it explains things better or, it, you know, other versions miss out on something and it explains, you know, antinomies and paradoxes better. What do you think about the translation wars? Well, the Bible wasn't written in English, bottom line. The Bible was written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic over a period of 1,500 years in, in, uh, by 40 different human authors. And so every English translation has its limitations, uh, but uh, we have some pretty good ones uh, that are formal equivalent and that do their best to capture what, what the quill, when the quill hit the sheepskin, what did God, the creator of the universe, intend to communicate with us? I personally prefer like the New King James or King James or New American Standard mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. rather than more paraphrastic translation. Paraphrastic, all right. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but, you know, again, uh, that's something that uh, sometimes, you know, when you paraphrase a verse, it, it really captures the essence of what uh, the Bible's trying to say there. But let's mm-hmm. let the Bible say what the Bible says and, and, and use commentaries for the paraphrases. JB, you're pretty smart. We're going to have you on again. Absolutely. You know that? Yeah. Well, thank you. Could you call my mother and tell her? That's great. <laughs> All right. Yes. We're we're big fans. Thank you so much for what you brought to the broadcast today. How do we get? Uh, how do we find you online? Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. Notbyworks.org or SpiritOfTheAntichrist.org. JB Hickson. All right, Mary. Yes. I hope you uh, I hope you learned a lot, Mary. I did learn I a did lot. I did this for you. Oh, thank you, Crash. <laughs> and I know that at notbyworks.org there's a great podcast on Monday about parables. Fantastic. If you want to learn more about parables and the nature of all that, I highly recommend that. Uh, Friday we have John Leffler. Steel by Steel. Yeah. And Monday my guest is Sean Terrio from Mark37.com. Let's get out of the matrix. It's mm-hmm. a real thing. Mm-hmm. Take us out of here. Yes. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in, not, in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you tomorrow.